this morning, uh, I've got this problem, and that is I like charts and graphs. And uh, I'm not going to apologize, even though I am. Uh, I know you can't really read it from here, uh, everything, but I'd like to, as we go along, especially as we finish up our, the, the Gospel of Matthew, which we're going to be in it for a few more months, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, this kind of gives us an idea of the Passion Week, roughly those seven or eight days before Jesus would would, would, would be crucified and ultimately rise from the grave. And that's really where God, the Gospel of Matthew ends, is after his resurrection. And the, the Passion Week is just a seven-day week, and so or eight days approximately. And, and there's a lot of events that, are, that have occurred in that week. And we're right in the middle of this, this middle day of, of, the, of this Passion Week on Wednesday. It's the 12th of Nizon, April 1st. And there are a lot of things that happened on that day. Um, the events certainly that we're looking at right now going all the way until uh, Matthew 24 through 25 and also Jesus's prediction of of his crucifixion on the Passover and Judas's betrayal of him and so including in that is of course the Olivet Discourse which we will look at in a few weeks but we're getting very close to the time where Christ would be taken and um, the nation of Israel by this time had totally rejected Jesus and the world has rejected Christ. It wasn't just something new to the first century when Rome was uh, overbearing and, and the, the empire of the world of the day back then in the first century. But not only was it true then, but it's true today. You know, we believers, we believe in Jesus, we believe in his word, but there are a great number of people that don't believe in Christ at all. They don't believe in the word of God. And it's just because they haven't been told the truth. And your heart has to be open for the truth. And the Bible is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. So there's no other way to heaven. No other way. Not Confucius, not Muhammad, not Allah, not Buddha, not anybody else. There's only one way because there's only one person who died for your sin. And that's Jesus. No other world religion can claim that. It never even occurred to them. That sin was an issue, but to God, who is holy, the soul that sins shall surely die, because God's standards are, I don't know if you knew this, but his standards are pretty high. But he knows that we can't fulfill it, and he knew that we would ultimately fail, and that's why the Bible says in Revelation 13, verse 8, that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Do you, do you get that? Before the world, before Genesis 1, 1, there was already an escape, there was already a rescue mission planned. And the Godhead was very much aware of that because there's something about free will, isn't there? As soon as you give a person free will, they have the ability to choose. Am I going to follow Christ or am I going to deny him? There's only one, one, you got a choice, two choices to make in life. Either accept Christ and be accepted in the beloved to be raptured when the church is raptured. Or you can reject Christ to the very end and spend an eternity in hell. Yes, I said it. I'm not afraid to say it because Jesus said it more than anybody. But those are the two choices that everyone has. And there is no door number three. This isn't the price is right. There's no door number three. So Jesus now, he is being harassed by the religious leaders. They are taking him to task. They are confronting him. And now, as they don't even know exactly what's coming, but he is very much aware of what's coming. Jesus came to the earth for this purpose, for his crucifixion. He knew it would happen, and there was nothing that was going to stop him. And yet, all along the way, there were many opportunities where Pilate could have said, you know what, I find nothing in this man. He actually did say that. And do you think Jesus was biting his nails going, no, now this is the time, it's the Passover, it's the high Passover, and I'm supposed to die. He wasn't worried. He sat there very calmly, like a lamb to the slaughter. He was without speech. Because he knew the hearts of the people, and he knew that they would cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And finally, Pilate, because he's such a consummate politician, okay, I wash my hands of this. You have it, right? And so they crucify him. They hated him. He was the only one who had real power on the earth. He was the only one who could heal 
the sick and raise the dead and heal the blind and the lame. And they could not. So they hated him. They hated him. So this morning, we're going to be continuing looking at these events. And the message this morning is school is in session or school's in session. And I use this phrase because Jesus is going to school these Pharisees and these Sadducees, these very intelligent religious intellectuals. He's going to school them on the scriptures and on the power of God. They thought that they were brilliant. They thought they were smart. They thought that they could accuse him and catch him in his words, but they failed and they will continue to fail Because their hard-heartedness, they continued walking in their unbelief and their disobedience, but they were no match for our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, just a couple of days from this very moment, would be crucified, but now they're going to severely challenge him, and he is going to be ahead of them each step of the way as he anticipates their questions and brings them to silence. So he's going to school them on their ignorance concerning the resurrection and the law. And last week, we looked at uh, the whole tax issue that they brought up, and we looked at the resurrection. And in verses 23 through 33, the Sadducees, remember, were testing Jesus with this ridiculous resurrection scenario concerning a woman who had outlived her many husbands and finally died herself. And Jesus corrects their ignorance concerning the resurrection because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the supernatural. And they certainly didn't believe and understand the word of God. Willful ignorance, perhaps. But he corrects them. And so last week we looked at this dialogue between the Sadducees and Jesus. But this morning I'd like for us to review the resurrection again before we finish this chapter this morning. And, and, and discuss a few other things that may better help us to understand this very important doctrine and to understand what biblically happens to us when we die. When we die, what happens? A lot of people are wondering. They're still confused about it. They're, they're not really sure. And, um, and so let me summarize for you briefly before we actually dig into it, and then we'll finish the chapter When a believer dies today, if one of us were to die, and this is true for back in Jesus' day after his resurrection, when a a believer would die, their body would go into the ground, but their soul and their spirit would go to heaven. And they would be there until the resurrection. And for us, the church, the resurrection, the very next thing for us is the rapture of the church. That is part of the resurrection, There's three phases to it, but the the rapture of the church is when Jesus comes down and and meets us in the clouds, and then the Bible says that those who have already died in Christ, they will be raised incorruptible with a new body, a celestial body. They will be caught up together, and they will meet the Lord in the air, and then those of us who are alive will be caught up or raptured or um, harpazo or in the the Latin rapio or rapiamir, we'll be raptured up We will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, just like that. We too will be changed, and we will be with him forever. On into the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign, and on into eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's what happens to us. But what about unbelievers? What happens to them? Yeah, that's a a right response. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So when an unbeliever dies, what happens? Same thing, their body goes into the ground or into the grave. Their soul and their spirit goes to Hades or hell. And they will be there in that place of torment until the end of Christ's thousand-year millennial kingdom. At the end of that thousand years, there's going to be what we call the white throne judgment. And then they too, they too, those who are in Hades or in hell, who have rejected Christ, they will be raised to a resurrection of condemnation, and they will stand before that great white throne judgment, and there is no hope at that point. There's no hope. There's no second chance. This is all we've got on this earth. And they will be resurrected in a body that will withstand the fires and the torments of the lake of fire for eternity. Okay? For eternity. That, in a nutshell, is what happens. Now, let's get into this a little bit more. Let's look at what the Bible says. 
Paul in Thessalonians, he says this. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So did, does everybody understand what I just said prior about the, where we go and how this all happens? That, that, I'm, that very, in a nutshell, that's what happens. But let's get into this, because it's important for you to understand this, because people want to know what's going on, and they want to know, and, and perhaps you're a little fuzzy on it yourself, but it's, it's a, an important doctrine for us to understand, because without the resurrection, we wouldn't be here. Without the resurrection we would be hopelessly lost. In fact, the Christian faith is based, the bedrock of it is the, is the resurrection. Yes, the crucifixion was extremely important, but there's no proof that the crucifixion was effective unless he was raised from the grave as the scriptures foretold. Follow me? But because God raised his son from the grave, defeating death and hell, fulfilling all of those Old Testament prophecies, it confirmed what we all knew to be true, what the Bible had been telling for ages. But the Bible says that we're a three-part being. Paul tells us that. May your whole spirit, soul, and body, notice the order, spirit, soul, and body. We always say body, soul, and spirit because we like our bodies. Body, soul, and spirit, but Paul puts it in the right order. Spirit, soul, and body. So just like the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we too are like a, a, a tri, uh, I don't know, a trifecta, I don't know what you want to call it. We're, we're a triune being as well. We're a body, soul, and spirit. Go figure. But when we die physically, believers, our bodies, or, or actually anybody who dies, uh, they're buried in our soul. They're buried in the ground, and our soul and our spirit go to one or two places. As I said before, they're either going to go to heaven if you're a believer, or you're going to go to hell if you're an unbeliever to Hades. For the believer, we go to heaven, and it's also called paradise or Abraham's bosom. Those terms are synonymous. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul said this. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, meaning this body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, this new body that we know we're going to receive. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan. Are any of you groaning with bad knees and bad backs? And Yeah, well, just raise your hand if you're struggling with some kind of illness, some kind of, you know, problem. You can't, you know, your tooth is out of joint, your leg won't work anymore, you know, your arm is broken, I don't know. We've all got issues, right? We're groaning, waiting to be clothed upon. For we are in this, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God and has given us the spirit as a guarantee so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body we are absent from the Lord for we walk by faith and not by sight we are confident yes well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord amen we're looking forward to that day I'm not afraid of that I'm not, I'm not looking forward to the process. I'm hoping that after Thanksgiving one year, somewhere in the future or whenever, I've got my belly full of pie and whipped cream, and the Dallas has just won the game, and I've got a big smile on my face. I go to bed. I know some of you aren't Dallas fans, but the Lord will ch touch your heart. And I'll go to bed, and just something will happen, and I'll wake up in glory. See, that's the way I would like to go. Not, I don't want to fall off a cliff or be run over by a truck and, or anything like that. Nothing messy if I can help it. But see, that's not up to me, right? But I, I want to be with him. I want to be with him. So as a believer, when we die, our body goes into the ground, but our spirit and our soul, this non-physical part of us, goes to heaven until our part in the resurrection occurs. And Jesus called this the resurrection of life called it the resurrection of life. Now for the unbeliever, when they die, their soul and their spirit goes to hell or to Hades. And we see this clearly in Luke chapter 16 concerning the rich man and Lazarus. It says in verse six, uh, 19 of Luke 16, there was a certain man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate 
desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. You know, man's best friend, you know. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to what? Abraham's bosom. That's a Jewish euphemism for heaven. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, in hell, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And that's not really a parable, by the way. Because in parables, Jesus don't, doesn't usually mention names. I believe this really happened, and Jesus was giving us a glimpse of what happens when we die and where we go, and some spiritual truth about those things. So when an unbeliever dies, their body goes in the ground, their soul and their spirit goes to Hades to await what? The resurrection of damnation. So we have the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation. So I've mentioned this before, and where is this in the Bible? Who said it? Jesus. He said it. And there's no greater authority than Jesus. In John chapter 5, verse 25, what does he say? Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority, notice, to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. But here it is. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all, believers and unbelievers, all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Do you see that? Jesus gave us this idea that there's going to be a resurrection for all. It's either going to be a resurrection of life or a resurrection of condemnation. And so everyone will ultimately be resurrected. So the only question will be, where will you spend your eternity in your resurrected body? Is it going to be heaven or hell? And guess what? You have the, God gives you the authority to make that decision. And I don't know about you, but when I'm given the facts, and I've been studying this for a long time, when I'm giving the true facts, and I know that it's true, it's very easy for me to choose Jesus. And yes, I am afraid of hell. I don't want to go there. I don't want anybody I know to go there. Your friends are not going to be in hell. If you're an unbeliever, your friends aren't partying in hell. They are not. So those who are Christ, they will take part in the resurrection of life in heaven, and those who have rejected Christ will take their part in the resurrection of damnation, also called the second death. We'll see this in Revelation shortly, and it's also called the lake of fire. That's the place where the second death occurs, is in the lake of fire, or Gehenna, as we, look at, we looked at that. And so we looked at this last week, that there are three phases to the resurrection of life for the believer. And I believe 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, is the key to all of this. Notice what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, for as in Adam, all die. That's true, everyone dies. That's one thing you can be assured of, right? Everyone is gonna die at some point unless the rapture occurs first and we're taken while we're alive. For all in Adam die, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. But notice this. Important, verse 23. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. Now you may be wondering, as I have, which coming? We know that he's coming for the church in the rapture, and he's also coming back in the second coming physically to the earth. Well, I believe he's, in, he's, in, he's speaking of both things here. Because at both of these locations, at these times, a resurrection occurs. And so, when Christ comes for the church at the rapture, we're raised incorruptible, the dead in Christ first, and then we which are alive and remain. And then there's also another coming, except we don't, he doesn't come to the earth in the rapture, but in the second coming to the earth, he comes to the earth. And so I believe he's talking to that. So what we have here is a, a three-phase resurrection. Christ, the first fruits, we know that he rose from the grave, And I've added a few more colors here to hopefully make it clear by color coding this, but I, I want to share this with you because if you're like me, 
I like to see things visibly. So we see this very phase one right here. This is the resurrection of Jesus. And there's scriptures under here, and we're going to be looking at these. That's really phase one of this passage that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 5.23. The first thing is the first fruits. Because listen, people have been resurrected prior to this, but not in their resurrection bodies, okay? We have to square that away. There have been people that have died. We know Eutychus, when he, when he fell out of the house, when Paul was ministering, he died, but he, he rose from his death. But he didn't receive a new body. Do you follow me? But in the resurrection that I'm referring to, it is a brand new body. And that's what dis- distinguishes it from any other person who has died, and ma- like Lazarus, for instance. He was dead, but he rose from the grave. But he didn't receive a resurrection body like Jesus did when he rose on the third day. Do you follow me? He died again, unfortunately. But he's in the grave awaiting his resurrection and so we have this phase one, which was Jesus, the first fruits. This phase two is the rapture of the church. We live in the church age right now, but soon that is going to change. When the church age is over, we are going to be raptured right here. So the rapture is going to be phase two. And then we have this tribulation period, which we've been talking about, that's yet future to us. That is going to occur when the Antichrist is on the earth and running the show, basically. God pouring out his wrath on a world that has rejected Christ. That is yet future to us after the church is removed. And then there's going to be a phase three after Jesus comes to the earth. Physically to the earth is phase three. And at that time when Christ comes back and begins his millennial reign, he is going to resurrect the Old Testament saints. People like Elijah and Moses and Abraham and Daniel, they will all be resurrected at that moment as well as those believers who survived the tribulation period, who came to Christ perhaps in the middle of that turmoil and were martyred and killed. They too will be raised at this third phase of the resurrection. So what is the first phase? We looked at it. It's Christ. All all four gospel accounts are recorded uh, as this being the very first fruits of the resurrection. Paul tells us that. We see it in Matthew 28. We see it in Mark 16, in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, John chapter 20. And then the second phase of the resurrection, which we are waiting for right now. And this is the rapture of the church when Jesus comes for us and we, those who are dead in Christ, receive a new body and we which are alive and remain are caught up and we meet him in the air. That is the second phase. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 sums this up. Paul telling them, and I'm going to read it to you again. You've heard this from me, but I'm, uh, hopefully it'll be even clearer to you today. And we won't touch on this topic for a while because I know I brought it up, but I... I I need to spend a little more time on this today before we move on. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it tells us, Paul tells the Thessalonians, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. This is verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep or who are dead in Christ. For this we say to you, notice, by the word of the Lord, this wasn't Paul's opinion, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, meaning in the rapture, will by no means precede those who have already died in Christ. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And then what? The dead in Christ will rise first. They will receive a resurrected body. And then they will be caught up together. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, harpazoed, raptured, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's pretty comforting. I really am looking forward to that. It's very comforting to know that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, again, speaking to the Corinthians, he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, this current body that we have, it cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 55, as you can see it. In phase two over here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. It says, For now 
This I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, meaning us right now in these bodies, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. For in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, which is quicker than I can snap my fingers, at the last trumpet, didn't we see that? At the trump of God, the dead in Christ will rise and we which are alive remain will be caught up. It's going to happen that quick. It's, it's going to happen. It's going to be imperceivable. And the dead, for the trumpet, excuse me, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the, of the last trumpet, meaning the, the, that trumpet of, of Christ coming, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this, in, this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, and this is Hosea chapter 13, verse 3. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah. Can I get an amen? Yeah, even a clap. <laughs> death is going to be swallowed up in victory. And he quotes and he goes, Oh, death, where is your sting? And oh, Hades, where is your victory? There's no victory over you, Christian. There's no, there's no uh, what do I say? There, there, there's victory for you. Yes, there's victory for you, but there's no hell for you. Death has no hold on you. Eternal death, the resurrection of condemnation, the lake of fire, all that has no part with you whatsoever. Why? Is it because you're so good? No, it's because your God is so good. That Jesus is so good. He is the one who purposed to give us his life for mine and for yours. It's the greatest switcheroo in history. I deserve death, but he took it for me in my place. And his, he was perfect in all of his ways. There was no spot or blemish in him. He took the price, right? And so now we come to this third phase of the resurrection. The Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints, those who died during the tribulation period, which is yet future to us, after the second coming of Christ comes to the earth. That third phase occurs after Christ comes back. And that is where we're going to see these Old Testament saints. And how do I know that? Daniel 12 tells us this. Let me read it to you. Verse 1 and 2. It says, At that time, Michael, this archangel, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Michael is talking to Daniel. And who is Daniel's people? It's the Jews, the Old Testament people. Uh, you know, we, we call them the Old Testament, before the cross. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. What do you think he's referring to? The tribulation period, absolutely. Even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Doesn't that sound an awful like, lot like what we read in John 5? When Jesus said our resurrection of life and our resurrection of condemnation, that's exactly what it is. Daniel, hundreds of years before Christ was even born in the flesh, spoke of that. And Jesus is saying, yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. That's exactly what's going to happen. And so those who are martyred, um, the, the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at that time. And those who are martyred during the great tribulation period for their faith in Christ will also be resurrected after the second coming of the Lord, after this third phase, right when Christ comes back. Somewhere in the beginning of that period, they will be resurrected. And they will receive the same body that you and I are going to receive at the rapture of the church. And God had an order in it, didn't he? In Revelation 20, verse 4, it talks about the tribulation saints. Who are these people? In Revelation 20, verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Now, we're talking about the middle of the tribulation period now, right? That's what we're talking about. Who had not worshipped the beast or his image, who had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they are going to take place, part in this resurrection. But what about the resurrection of unbelievers? What, the, what, what Jesus called the resurrection of condemnation? 
John in the book of Revelation calls it the second death as well. We know that when an unbeliever dies, their body is buried, their soul and their spirit goes to Hades. But when will they experience this resurrection of condemnation? And the answer for that is at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ at the great white throne judgment. So this is basically the same slide as before, but now we added this area here called the second death. After the millennium, millennial reign of Christ or that thousand year reign of Christ, there's gonna be a great white throne judgment and only unbelievers will take place at this, at this great white throne judgment. And what happens here is the second death. They will be resurrected, these people that have been currently in hell And it tells us in Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. Let me read it. Then, John says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. So if they're standing before God, these people who have died without Christ, they have to be brought up and resurrected. Jesus told us that they would have a resurrection of condemnation. They must be raised and have some physical form, a body that can withstand eternal torment. And that is what is going to happen. Unfortunately, nobody likes to think of this, right? I mean, do you think God enjoys talking about this? The Bible says that he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. And for, as a Christian, knowing that I'm going to heaven, we can develop this attitude wrongly that, you know, who cares about them? I'm saved, I'm, my ticket's punched, I'm going to heaven. No. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. It should break our hearts that people are walking around the earth today without God and without hope. And that is why we talk to them. We don't want them to experience what we know is true, what the Bible says is true. What Jesus said is true. We don't want them to go through that. And he says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, remember those people who go to hell? Now they are all brought up to the great white throne judgment. And then death and Hades, at that point, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That is the eternal punishment for those who have rejected Christ. And it breaks the heart of God. And it ought to break ours too. I don't, when I was first saved, I had this attitude. Well, if you're not on the right team, then, you know, whatever. But you know what? Anymore, I'm like, as I grow older in Christ and I understand the love of God more and I understand the grace of God more, my heart is more breaking now than ever. And I don't get angry with people because they hate God. I pity them. And it breaks your heart. It breaks his heart a lot more because his love is perfect. Mine, not so much. But he is perfect. But unbelievers will be given a resurrected body. And even in Mark's gospel, in chapter 9, verse 43, Jesus said this, if your hand causes you to sin, now he's speaking figuratively here, not to literally cut your hand off, but he says, it's better for you if your hand causes you to sin to, uh, to cut it off and enter into life maim rather than having two hands to go to Gehenna into the lake that shall never be, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He goes on in that passage and repeats that three other times, two other times. So this is very real stuff. And the New Testament isn't the only place that talks about the resurrection. We looked at this last week and we're going to forego this now because we looked at this last week about the Old Testament passages concerning the resurrection. And, and there they are. We looked at them last week. And so we're just going to go on now into uh, this next spot. So notice in verse 34 in our text now, we're getting to the end of this chapter. It says, the, but when the Pharisees had heard how he had silenced the Sadducees because they're talking about the resurrection and Jesus basically just shows them their folly and their misunderstanding of the power of God and the word of God. But when the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question and testing him, saying, and he, can you imagine this? They, they test 
Jesus. They test God. The word here is pyrodso, and it means to scrutinize, to test, to tempt, and even to look at him like you're in, you're in the judgment seat instead of God being in the judgment seat. And this is the same exact word that was used when Jesus was tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4 for 40 days. Remember that? The devil tested Jesus for 40 days. And a word to the wise, don't tempt God. Don't tempt God. I don't want to tempt God. I want to submit to God. I don't want to argue with God. I want to take what he says and humbly listen and respond obediently. I love him. He knows what's best for me. He's our good father. He's a good father. Maybe your father wasn't so good to you. Maybe he came home drunk and beat you in the middle of the night and woke you up. I know many people that that's their story. But our father is a good father. He's a good, good father. It's who you are. He is a good father. And on top of all of that, what does it tell us in James? Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt, nor does he tempt, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Who is the tempter? It's Satan, it's not God. So then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Now, one thing we have to remember is that the rabbis of this time, at this time, they took those Ten Commandments that God had given, and they arranged and came up with 613 different commandments of rules and regulations. Why does man do that? You know, we're not, you can't even follow one of them, and you can't much less follow 10 of them. Well, let's just make up 613 other ones and further put ourselves in chains. Sounds like a good plan. Not, right? Everybody awake? All right. So they had 613 commandments in the law that they needed to follow. So Jesus said to them, verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Pretty tall order. It sounds very simple in theory, but in practice it is not so easy. How many of you have loved God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind? Even today, I failed already, right? This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said, verse 38. And it's interesting that the verse that Jesus quoted here in verse 37 is from Deuteronomy. It's not even from Exodus 20 where we read about the Ten Commandments. Do you understand that? He's not even quoting from the, from the, from the Ten Commandments. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And the second Jesus said is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So isn't it interesting now that God gave to Moses ten commandments. Jesus here in verses 37 through 39 is narrowing all of that down to ten commandments. Or two commandments, excuse me. Jesus is narrowing the ten commandments down to two. And if you look at those table of law, the, the, the ten commandments, you will notice something. The first four commandments are about your relationship with God. And the other six are about your relationship with man. So what does that boil down to? Jesus hit it right on the nose. Of course, because he inspired the writing of the Ten Commandments. He was there when, they, when he was speaking to Moses on that mountain in Mount Sinai. Because those first four talk about our relationship with God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And then... The second one is, just like the, the last six commandments, all about our relationship with our fellow man, you know, committing adultery, stealing from them, all those things. And the second one is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Wow, so what did he just do? He just took the Ten Commandments and goes, there's two. <laughs> man wants to make 613. God takes what he gave and says, I can narrow it down to two. On these two commandments, Jesus said, verse 40, hang all the law and the prophets. And here again, they're trying to trip him up. Which is the greatest commandment? We got 613 and you better pick the one that we think is right. And he's like, no, I'm not going to play that game. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, and the second one is like it. He, noticed, he didn't even give them the opportunity to narrow it down to one. 
He says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. Can't do it. We are the sheep. He's the shepherd. So, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, The son of David. Wow, they got one right. Notice that while they were still reeling from Jesus' response, basically shutting them up, wasn't he? I mean, this whole thing about, you know, the resurrection and now this, uh, what we just read here about the first of the commandments, you know, he's shutting these religious leaders down in a big way. And before they even had a chance to come back with something, he gives them a question. And I love this. Who's in control here? Yes, he is. All of that is correct. God, because Jesus is God. And Jesus is in control because he's God. He's got it all under control. And while they are still reeling from what he just said prior, he hits them with a question. He catches them off guard. The son of David we know is a messianic title. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, one of my favorite passages, I, I, I talk about this all the time because it's so pivotal to everything. It, it speaks of David's son, who was Solomon in, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, but it also speaks of the one who would have the everlasting kingdom, speaking of David's son, who would ultimately be Jesus Christ, the Messiah, also the lion of the tribe of Judah, coming from the line of Judah, right? And Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 uh, affirms that for us. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So this messianic title of son of David, they knew very well. And Jesus said, yes, I am the son of David. But then he said to them, well, then how, how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, what is he referring to here? Psalm 110, right? Now, for those of you who were in the New Believers class yesterday, we talked about this. When it says the Lord, notice it's in all caps, right? But we're in the Greek right here because it's a New Testament. And so in the Greek, it says the Lord is Kyrios. So it says literally, Kyrios said to Kyrios, the Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. But what does Psalm 110 tell us in the original Hebrew? Because that's what Jesus is referring to is the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 110 specifically, verse 1. And what does it tell us? And again, this is just a fine point, but it's very interesting because as Jesus is quoting this, you look back in the Old Testament in Psalm 110, it says, the Lord, it's all caps again, but in Hebrew, it's Jehovah or Yahweh, speaking of God the Father. So the Lord said to my Lord, in the Hebrew, it's Adonai. So do you, you see what's happening here? Who is speaking to who? The Lord said unto my Lord. David is speaking this. The Lord, God the Father, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, speaking of Jesus, sit on my right hand, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Obviously speaking of Psalm 2 and the millennial reign that is yet ahead of us, he's going to put all enemies under his foot, under his feet. All the kingdoms of the world are going to come crashing down, fulfilling Daniel's vision of the rock made without hands, crumbling that large statue of all the kingdoms of the world, just coming down in one small, one large heap of ruin. The rock, Christ, coming back. Amen? So verse 45, so we've got a problem here. He is David's son in the flesh. But he's also David's Lord. So Jesus said, verse 45, if David then calls him Lord, then how is he his son? Well, Jesus truly was a descendant from David in the flesh. That's easy. You can look at Matthew's gospel, the first chapter. You can look at the very last few verses of the book of Ruth. 
Many other places speak of the genealogy of Jesus in the flesh. We know he always lives, always lived in eternity past, but became, became flesh and dwelt among us, as it says in John 1, verse 14, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, the Logos, speaking of Jesus Christ. So the truth is, is that Jesus is both Lord and Son of David. Because Jesus, it tells us in Colossians 1, verse 16, that he created all things, right? By him and for him they were created, whether in principalities, whether dominions, thrones, it doesn't matter, things visible and invisible, all things were created by him and for him, and by him all things consist, and he is the head over all, our Savior Jesus all of us have been created by God because it all goes back to Adam. And even the mystery in the womb, each one of us, that's God's handiwork. And look at you today. Look at how beautiful you are. But the magnitude of that truth to these men and Jesus basically declaring his deity shut them down in an instant. Do you see what he did there? So while they're reeling from, his, from asking him questions, he retorts with a question and bullseye right in the heart. Whose son is David? Or whose son is the Messiah? Oh, he's the son of David. Well, he's standing right before them, fulfilling all of the Old Testament scriptures, and yet they would not see it. You know, seeing is not believing. You know this, right? Seeing is not believing. But once you believe, then you see. That's the truth. That's the truth that nobody likes to think about. But that is true. Because if seeing was believing, then everybody there should have fallen on their faces and given their hearts to Christ. But that didn't happen, did it? Just the opposite happened. So seeing doesn't necessarily make you believe. Well, show me a miracle and and I'll believe. Well, all kinds of miracles were happening. And none of those Pharisees, those guys in their ivory towers with their Harvard degrees, none of them believed. And no one was able to answer, verse 46, him a word. Nor from that day... On, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore because by this time, again, the nation, they rejected him. The religious leaders were jealous of him. They were on a course to do anything to put him to death. Anything and everything. They got the Supreme Court involved. They had some lawyers down in New York City to come against him. And sorry, I shouldn't equate that to what we're thinking. But the remaining chapters in Matthew is going to expose this plot the greatest plot that has ever occurred in the history of the world. The plot to kill the very Son of God, the Messiah. And they would be successful in putting Jesus to death only because it was, he was supposed to be put to death. But, but they were going to be held accountable for their hatred and what they did. But something happened on the third day that they did not anticipate, and that was his resurrection. Are you ready for the resurrection? I mean, some people aren't. And just be honest with yourself because, you know, I, we, we can talk a big game, but think about it. If, the, if you knew the rapture was going to occur in five minutes, would that t- bring terror into your heart? Or would you be like really excited? I would probably throw up. From excitement and lay probably on my stomach until it happened. I'd be so excited. And I'd, be, I'd be all like, oh my gosh. Excitement, anticipation. Just being honest. Can I be honest with you? Sorry, we're going to have dinner or lunch here shortly, but you know. But are you ready for the resurrection? For the church, this is the very next thing, biblically, that we're waiting for. To be transformed into our resurrected bodies. To be taken off the earth. To meet the Lord in the air and forever we will be with him. It's a very comforting thought. Let me leave you. Open your Bibles to Matthew, or excuse me, John's Gospel, chapter 14. We're going to read three verses. And then we're going to come up. Uh, Kath, if you can come on up and we'll do one more song of worship at the end here. But look at with me in John chapter 14. 
Just the first three verses. Jesus is giving, saying this to his disciples in the upper room the night before he was taken. This is at the Last Supper, okay? Basically, chapters, John chapters 13 through 18, 17, 18, that, is, that all occurred on that night that they took the Passover meal. It was the same night that Jesus broke the bread and passed around the cup, instituting communion, what we do uh, often. But that same night, before he was even captured or arrested and then finally crucified hours later, he said this to them. He says, let not your heart be troubled. He told them that this was coming. I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested by the the, the religious leaders, but don't worry, they're going to crucify me. They're going to put me to death, but don't fear because in three days I'm going to rise. And, And they never really got that. But what did Jesus say to them? The most comforting words. He says, let not your heart be troubled, guys. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. How much clearer could it be? What was Jesus saying? In just a few hours, guys, I'm going to be crucified. But when I die and I resurrected, you're going to see me for about 40 days on the earth and then I'm going to ascend into heaven and I'm preparing a place for you. He's preparing a place for us right now. So the next thing that happens is we're going to hear the trump of God and he's going to come down in the clouds and he's going to say, come up here. And we are going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain caught up together. Isn't that awesome? Awesome. Hey, let's stand. Let's stand together. Father, you are so worthy, Lord. We are so blessed to be your children, Lord. Encourage us with these things, Lord. There's a lot of stuff. And Lord, it's just so wonderful, Lord, the mysteries that you reveal to us. And Lord, your great love for all of us, Lord. I pray that everyone here would just know how much they are beloved. They are loved by the one who created them, Lord. And your desire is just to have fellowship with us, Lord. So encourage us, Lord. And may we just give all of our heart to you, to give it all to you. As we sing, Lord, you are worthy. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Good to see you. God bless you.